It's Monday, May 6th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 206 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician today. That musician is new music sax specialist Ryan Muncy. Let's have a listen. It's not common to hear uh, a saxophone specialist in the world of new music, and Ryan is top of the heap. That's him playing Lee Hyla back there, by the way. Today on the show, Ryan Muncy. Hey, before we get into it, thank you to everyone who uh, reached out to say happy birthday. I appreciate it. Made me feel good. I am now 39 years old, and uh, time is really running out on uh, the different excuses I have for not having my shit together. But uh, thank you. Thank you for the lovely birthday wishes. That meant a lot to me. Had a lovely birthday lunch with Zorn, followed by a birthday dinner with my wife at Wild Air, which if you got, you know, I don't ever talk about restaurant stuff on here, even though I spend a good deal of my time talking about restaurant stuff. You guys were uh, looking for a good place to eat in Manhattan, specifically lower Manhattan? I'd like to recommend the restaurants of my good friends Jeremiah Stone and Fabian Von Hausk. Go to Contra and Wild Air on Orchard Street. I think they're two of the best restaurants downtown Manhattan. Contra, Wild Air. Do it. I want to put this out there. I'm booking a tour this summer. Uh, joint solo tour. Toby Driver and I are going to be hitting the road for a little over a week in August doing the Northeast. And if you hear this and you have any interest in bringing us to where you are, get in touch with me. Send me an email, simmerman at gmail.com. Today on the show, Ryan Muncy. Um, like I said a second ago, I, you know, being a new music saxophonist is pretty uncommon. Uh, there, there isn't a lot of repertoire for for saxophone in in concert and classical music. You know, the saxophone is a really pretty recent instrument, and you're starting to see now. You're starting to see a lot of really tremendous music. Uh, when I say now, I mean like in the last fifty years, uh, be be composed for the saxophone. And Ryan, uh, who is notable for his work, his earlier work uh, with Ensemble Daliente, and more recently as the saxophonist for ICE, the International Contemporary Ensemble, which you guys may remember, we've talked to uh, several members of ICE on the show. We've talked to Rebecca Heller, Josh Rubin, Claire Chase. ICE is a hugely important part of the world of new music, and, and Ryan has become a real central part of that. Today was the first time I ever met Ryan, this conversation that you're about to hear. But I picked up, he put out this record, uh, I think two or three years ago. It's really mind-blowing. It's called Ism. It's a collection of six pieces by contemporary composers. And again, you know, the word contemporary, to, to, to my mind, means 50 plus years. 50, 50 or so years, rather. Six pieces by composers like James Tenney, Lee Hyla, Morgan Krauss. Uh, tremendous music. Ryan plays the whole range of saxophones on the record. He's primarily, and we talk about this today, um, 
He's primarily uh, a soprano. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. We talk about that today. Today's a good one. If you want to hear the record I'm talking about, Ism, as well as some of his other recordings, and if you want to find out more about Ryan and what he's been up to, I strongly suggest that you do that. Go to RyanMuncie.com. That's RyanMuncie.com. Are you enjoying this show? Please consider becoming a Patreon donor. Go to Patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Sign up. Five bucks a month, you will be helping the show tremendously. And as a thank you, you will have access to the entire archive of this show. The way it's set up now, the most recent 100 episodes are available for free in iTunes. Everything before that, you have to become a Patreon donor to access. So it's literally hundreds of hours of conversation. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Also, if you could do me a favor, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That's another way to, to help. Word of mouth, still the thing. All right, that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here is my conversation with Ryan Muncie. <laughs> version of uh, like uh, ensemble modern or a right. it's like the, the, the really um, established, established Berlin new music ensemble founded and artistically directed and conducted by Anna Pope and okay really a fantastic uh, collective of musicians there and uh, I'm gonna be uh, a soloist with their ensemble in a big new piece by Wang Lu Okay. And she's the she's the Berlin Prize winner for 2019. How old is she? Goodness. She just had her Miller Theater portrait like last month. I think she's early 30s. It's amazing. She finished her Columbia University doctorate there and um she's uh she's living there for uh 7 or 8 months um at, at as a yeah, the Berlin Prize winner of right. the American Academy of Berlin. <laughs> Moved there with her husband Anthony Chung and they're like <laughs> one month old baby. They're they're absolute forces of nature. <laughs> Has contemporary music gotten a lot younger or am I like only paying attention to it now because like I know people at it? Well, I don't know, honestly. I know that I've gotten a lot older. <laughs> I know that I've gotten a lot older and, and um I'm okay with that. Yeah. I know that it's a lot more work for me to know who are the hip uh really out there um putting their Is it? their necks on the, the line um composers that are 20 years old you know that's 20 year old composers no, that's like for me to know who those are is a lot more work yeah but i, I mean 20 so right right i i just feel like so you 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 perform in ice the international right. yeah. and you also uh are you you work for the company that's right i have a hybrid role as the director of institutional giving uh, which is just a fancy word for me for writing grants and, and reporting grants, and I, I don't mean for that to just on flippant. It's a it's a big um, uh, job and responsibility, and, and I'm really privileged to help steward those relationships that right. that um, are are with institutions. But I feel like ICE probably more than like most of these like you know under twenty year old ensembles that we have in New York now works with so many composers, many of whom are young and kind of up and coming yeah there are just um even if we did that at 10 times the rate that we do we would still only be working with a fraction of these young composers there's just so yeah. much happening now which is it really great really um it's it's 
it's hard to keep your your finger on the pulse of what's happening even in New York, let alone what's happening in Chicago or right. Los Angeles or, or Berlin. Berlin, um, and that's that's really exciting. But uh, yeah, so was saxophone your first instrument? It was, yeah. You didn't start on clarinet. No, I didn't start on clarinet. Though I started playing clarinet um, when I was uh, a freshman in officially a freshman in college. This is a little known story, actually. I played um, <laughs> I played French horn in high school, and not because I had to, but because um, I was really I became somehow obsessed on my own with classical music um, and symphonic music uh, when I was in high school, and realized quickly that the instrument I had chosen uh, was not going to lead to that. The saxophone. So, right. Yeah. And so I went to my band director in high school. I must have been a sophomore or so and said, I really want to play in this youth orchestra that's um, this sort of county-based. I grew up in southern Indiana. Um, talented group, and, and but I don't play anything to get into that. But I knew happened to know that this orchestra, which is really good, um, had a lack, for French horn, of a lack of French horn players. Did you go to so, public school? I did. Yeah. And so he let me borrow a French horn, and I took it home for a couple months and practiced and practiced and like essentially uh, taught myself to play French horn. Uh, don't get me wrong, it was very bad. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very bad. Um, but yeah. it was happened to be good enough just to slide into this French horn sure. selection of the symphony orchestra. And so that became really uh, my my uh, extracurricular musical activity in high school. Um, and then I went to college and I was um, studying saxophone at Ball State University, uh -huh. studying with George Wolf in his saxophone studio. Really, um, really great place for me um, to, to, to go to when I was um, 18 and mm -hmm. just having grown up in Southern Indiana. It's a great environment for me. But I said, I have to be able, I have to continue playing French horn because what I've done in this orchestra, the music I've played is, you know, touched me much more than anything I've done in, in, a, in a concert band in saxophone. Huh. And he said, great. I support all of this except for the, the, the part about French horn. <laughs> he said, you can take, uh, you can take clarinet lessons, um, but it would not make sense for you as a um, saxophone major. Uh, at that time I was a music education major and later the next year switched over to performance. And I think he saw that coming. He, he said, this just doesn't make sense for you to take French horn lessons. Um, but you should be able to have a double as a saxophone player. Cause That's you were just playing alto, uh, alto and soprano. Alto and soprano. Okay. <laughs> And so he said, yeah, you can take clarinet lessons. Um, clarinet teacher, uh, Dr. Uh, Caroline Hartig, who um, has went on to be one of my really, really close mentors in uh, my undergrad, um, for whatever reason, um, I think took me on as a little side project and taught me half-hour lessons a week. And yeah. within <laughs> within six months, I was um, – I was, uh, really um yeah well i was playing clarinet and i ended up being principal in the symphony orchestra of my undergrad for the next three years and really favored that over any sort of saxophone playing in in um in undergrad so what when i when i came out of my undergrad i i had this um more than anything this deep love and background in in symphonic <laughs> music performance uh -huh. and playing clarinet in like woodwind quintet i had played saxophone in a uh, saxophone quartet in a year in jazz band but it's just that was so fo far from the forefront of like my my current right. like uh, but when you when you want you, you chose the saxophone as a child right and that was based that that desire to play the saxophone must have been based in jazz no 
Oh, uh, no, no. The story is nowhere near that that deep or cool. Um, I was just. I remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like saxophone. It's like. Well, these are the. Motiv- everyone wants to play the sax <laughs> when they're giving out instruments. Right. These are the motivations of a ten year old, though. Because right. when I was in fourth grade, at the age of nine, we were playing the recorder, and um, in elementary school, and um, I remember being. Uh, sort of the best one in my class and mm-hmm. that was I think probably the first time that I like officially remember being like the best at Good something at something, in my right? class and when it came time to choose instruments um, uh, I remember the band director telling me that the fingering system for the saxophone was really similar to the fingering system for the recorder I remember remember thinking <laughs> I will I will hold my title. That's sound I, logic. That's totally sound logic. And plus it's like this shiny instrument with a bunch of keys and like it yeah. uh, looks really cool. So yeah. like what's not to, that's more than enough motivation for a 10 year old. I mean, I, 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 I know we're going to get there, but like the, the classical repertoire for the saxophone is incredibly limited. Yeah. I mean, the instrument was only built in the 1800s. No? Yeah, it was, it was, it was built in the 1800s and really, um, never uh amounted to anything until the 1900s and it was right really developed as an instrument for these for these outdoor um military bands uh in the 1900s we start seeing some repertoire for the instrument um but really not until like the 19 um the late 1970s do we see things that like lee hyla and yeah i mean even a little, a little bit before that i'm thinking to to composers like francois jose and um in france um it was really so, uh, this sort of group of uh, of composers that were based in Bordeaux um, and with the, the leadership of uh, Jean-Marie Landex, who is the, the saxophone, uh, legendary saxophone teacher at the Bo- uh, Bordeaux Conservatory mm-hmm. for many, many decades, started composing these pieces which were irrefutably for the saxophone. And what I mean by that is that they were not pieces that could be in any way translated to um, to another instrument. They couldn't pieces that couldn't be transcribed. I mean, even if we look at the, some some of the great saxophone repertoire from like, let's go ten years before that, um, twenty years before that, uh, that's music that of which the sound of is not inherently tied to the the acoustic properties of the saxophone. Here in the nineteen seventies, we see composers writing things that just that are are using multiphonics that are are doing that in in ways that are essential to the harmonic structure of the piece that just make the music. Um, irrefutably for the instrument. Yeah. So finally, that's when I think we start getting into um, what I would say is like the beginning of the experimental phase of the instrument. Right. And and did you find your way to that stuff specifically because you were looking for saxophone repertoire? No, I found my way to all of that having played... Um, and again, that's just my opinion. I mean, yeah. you could, you, any other saxophone player um, might have a, a just as valid. I don't honestly or, know any classical saxophonists. It, it, well, I mean, I, what I would say is that 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 leading to that point meant that I played a lot of repertoire from before that period. A lot of it in school, um, a lot of repertoire, you know, from 1978, 1979 onward, um, mostly um, without having chosen that repertoire, without the leadership of a of a teacher, meaning. Um, I would, I would, I would choose that music and take it into school, and then right. try to learn it um, with a teacher who didn't specialize in that music. Um, that was after a lot of thinking. I, I almost um, wrote my dissertation on this this topic about the point of the modernization of the saxophone being, and in, in 1978 in Bordeaux, France, it was really a topic I wanted to um, to, to do, and, and in some ways, I'm still spiritually committed to. 
Uh, it's just that, that it's my, my, my saxophone teacher at Fred Hemke at Northwestern uh, retired and uh, in here, and I needed to get out of school and get my dissertation finished, and that was just going to be a bigger project than I could take on at the time, so I switched right. my topic. But what, did you, wait, what did you switch it to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I switched it to... Um, Something a little less deep, but but which is also more practical to the sure. to the what, where my um, creative practice was at that point, which was uh, doing a, a, an investigation and performers analysis of this triptych of pieces by Klaus Torstensen, who is um, a really really fantastic uh, Swedish composer. Who um, well, he was born in Sweden. He's made his career in Amsterdam. Uh, he wrote this um, this triptych of pieces back from the the late seventies and early uh, excuse me the nineteen eighties, um, in, in which uh, I thought was just so far ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started with a solo for bass saxophone, um, and then the second part of the triptych was the saxophone quartet called Licks and Brains, and then the, the third part of his uh, of the triptych is a is for saxophone quartet. The same piece with large ensemble um, called Licks and Brains do, and it's really just this gutsy piece that I thought had a completely new vocabulary for the instrument for, for the year it was composed. When was it composed? Uh, the first one was in... You know, I should know this because I wrote my dissertation <laughs> on it. I can't remember. But it, we're talking... Decade? Yeah, we're talking 1980s. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, early 80s. Um, Anyway, I, I, that was a piece in the composer that I was studying a lot at the time. That was repertoire that I was learning a lot from at the time. Uh, and what's interesting about Klaus's music is that it's completely different now. He's he's really this um, sort of big scale symphonic composer who's writing for really um, really visible European orchestras and sure. is being commissioned by festivals. And what you get more are these sort of like um, soundscape pieces that. Not to like um, you know, to categorize his music too much in a in a way that seems reductive, but um, is a little bit less uh, aggressive experimentally. Got it. <laughs> you know, yeah, a yeah, more yeah. Conservative in its sounds. Yeah, bit. it's. I mean, I, I again, like I'm I'm probably way out of my depth even saying anything about this, but like it, it feels like most of the the, the contemporary music i hear where the, it's written for the saxophone it tends to be you know kind of about the extra musical qualities of the instrument and uh, a lot of it's based around extended technique and you know not necessarily melodic uh music to be you know enjoyed by a general audience right am i am i wrong no i don't th- well again uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah yeah i don't think you're wrong right um i that leads to a really um, sort of big point in my at the forefront of my attention over the last few years, um, and that's regarding my relationship with the soprano saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an instrument that uh, I've always just had a knack for. Um, uh, I don't know if it's like my 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 superpower. I hope it's not because what a, what a you know if I. <laughs> If my superpower is like my my just like uncanny knack for like controlling the soprano saxophone. <laughs> anyway, where I'm going with that is that um, uh, since my undergrad, it's always I've I've always just um, naturally um, been good at it. I've played soprano saxophone in a lot of quartets. I've done a lot of soprano saxophone repertoire, and I at some point in the last um, five years had this realization, and and 
it was as I listened to myself playing some music that had um, melodic content on the soprano saxophone, and as I was listening to other saxophone players um, in performance who who were very talented, and, and, and no criticism to them, um, were playing very, very, very melodic music mm-hmm. on the soprano saxophone, and seeing the reaction of people who were not musicians, and I realized that to to the world when they hear a melody played on the soprano saxophone it sounds like smooth jazz mm-hmm. it is irrefutably tied to Kenny. the sound of Kenny G, Kenny G right. to that to that sound of music and it, that that's that is like a a a, a societal <laughs> cultural thing that's like very right now mm-hmm. you know 20 years ago the sound of the soprano saxophone playing a melody didn't have that 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 parallel that connotation Today it does. It doesn't. Well, I've heard a lot of people comment. Um, you know, people who are now in their fifties and sixties who grew up as sax players that when they first heard Coltrane's version of My Favorite Things on soprano, that the instrument sounded Eastern and exotic. That the the, the general association with the sound of the soprano then was this like quote unquote Oriental instrument. Right. And you know there is this whole um, this this Eastern um, style of saxophone playing. There are some incredible saxophone players in India. Yeah, we have a completely different creative practice than than we do in the United States and in in, in Western Europe. And I'm absolutely fascinated by that. And it's completely um, ir- um, uh, uncopyable by by what but by, by what our creative practice you know yields yeah <laughs> playing. but um this point um this sort of realization uh was a little bit hard for me because i i i suddenly went from you know having this instrument that i was always good at and that i love to play and realizing that when i when i played on that instrument it did it did not mean to carry baggage to, it, it carried baggage yeah. that i all of a sudden saw and i was a little bit embarrassed then that i i had been you know not realized it until that point and i've i've had a hard time since that moment with not only um uh performing music that's um uh melodic in any sense on the soprano saxophone but but well i guess that i should say that it's also been a, a moment of opportunity because like in every um new collaboration i've done since then that involves soprano saxophone it's been a good chance for me to like start undoing that yeah right? so i i don't know i i don't mean to like um to 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 put too much uh, like um, you know profound meaning into what what I'm doing with my work on the soprano saxophone, but I do think that it's part of my work to to like start undoing that baggage and just start... internally or for the world. Uh, well, I guess for <laughs> you know as all things first internally. Yeah, <laughs> and which I've done. Because great... do you have that baggage? With no, it? I've made great progress on that. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> but I, I mean the I... other thing about the soprano sax, and I guess like this is obviously not something that the average listener would necessarily be aware of if they're not actually. Uh, musicians and saxophonists in particular is a lot of people that play the soprano sound really bad on it it's a secondary instrument and when someone's not good at soprano to my ears it's way more uh quickly obvious than other instruments this is true this is true it's also the instrument for me when i don't um when i don't practice it for um two weeks or even if i don't eat it for a month like the, the when i come back to it i sound bad you know it's really it's it's an instrument that takes a lot of work a lot of um discipline mm-hmm. and it's it's it is it's it's a really hard instrument to make it sound good to make it to make it play in tune to make it um be very controlled especially at low dynamics um the extreme registers of it are are 
very very difficult to control <laughs> yeah it's it's an instrument that takes a lot of work yeah and so i mean in that in this realization it has been although an opportunity um it is a lot of work um to to move forward with with not just saying well forget it i'm not gonna work with the soprano saxophone i'm just gonna you know wait till 20 years till kenichi's not a thing anyone knows anymore no i think that it's i think that that's um i'm i think that's not the right attitude um i think there's a way to use this instrument and to use it expressively and creatively that does not make people that, that does not lead um, either a musicians or a general listener public you know listeners um attention does not refer back to Kenny G. There right. has to be a way to do that. More. Well, two things I would say. One, I mean, have you ever listened critically to Kenny G? <laughs> well, <laughs> define critically. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. an, analyzing the way he plays. And... Yeah, I think he's a great player. He's a great That's player. The thing. He's a, there's no question. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm. You know, we. He's. You know, people love. People might feel love to make fun of Kenny G. I think he's a great player. He yeah. does a great thing. And, well, he also not... he knows. I mean, aesthetically, however questionable what he does is, he's totally aware of it. He's completely aware of it. Um, but the other thing, no, the thing is, for you know, people who are fans of you know various strains of contemporary music, experimental music, improvised music, there's kind of a similar thing with Evan Parker, which is the second part. The soprano sax people already have this sound and image in their head, and I think for a lot of musicians just as creative people i think they have a difficult time playing beyond that that's a really good point <laughs> um and even like self uh admittedly um as i've um done an increasing amount of of improvised music um uh and really at the the encouragement and collaboration of my of my friends and colleagues like peter evans and yeah. gary smythe and all of them um Doing improvised music on the soprano saxophone has has presented that very challenge. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Evan Parker is one of my greatest inspirations. He's one. He's probably the when it comes to soprano saxophone, that's who I'm listening to. That's the guy. Right? Yeah. That's who I'm listening yeah. to to like you know undo all of this other stuff. And still, he's you know even though he's a legend already in music, he's still a, a tiny niche in terms of the yeah. The, 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 what the, but what I the mean, his his influence and it's very. I, I think there's very few people you could say this about, but his influence on that horn. Is mountainous, mountainous, mountainous. No, he, he he really changed everything. Yeah. Um. I I think that I I don't aspire to uh, creatively expand upon his improvised work. The work he's done on improvised music on this brand of saxophone. What he's done is, I mean, I, I treasure it, and it's in such a, a different universe. Um. Uh. I think that right now I see my work on the instrument being a little bit more in terms of notated music. Um. Mm -hmm. And and how that can be done uh, uh, in chamber, chamber. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I kind of feel like, you know, where the influence of Evan Parker could be most valuable is not in the world of improvised music, but is in the world of composed music and how people interpret it. That is a wonderful point. I completely agree. Did you, um, so you, you got your doctorate in performance. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and so we, that's, 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 that's where we left off was, was, finding your way to this you know 20th century saxophone music as a interpreter of classical music yeah um i would have to dial it back to 2007 and i'll try to do the the abbreviated version of this story which um if i'm not careful will last um easily an hour <laughs> <laughs> but i had been studying in in paris in the uh, class of jean, jean michel Goury, and 
uh, decided to start my doctorate in Northwestern um, and was accepted into Fred Henke's class. And so I moved to Chicago in, in fall of 2007. To go to Northwestern. To, North, to go to Northwestern, yeah. yeah. And um, I finished my coursework two years later and um, was really reaching a point where I was feeling you know, spiritually done with school. And um, I finished my qualifying exams and was sort of, uh, quote unquote, on the job market. And... Um, Right around that time, there was this um, this really bad recession, and there were no saxophone jobs open for I don't two and a half three years. Yeah, um, it was a really really hard time to all of a sudden be thrown uh, out of school into the world, being cut off from your practice room privileges and from your all of your privileges from being a student um, and having none of that, uh, and having instead to figure out things on your own and having no control <laughs> um, over this like big picture thing. And so yeah. I remember that moment and uh, over the course of a year looking, just waiting, searching every day for some sort of college job, adjunct job that came up because this had, was the trajectory I had been on to teaching in college and, and nothing was coming up. And it was, um, uh, it was a really hard moment. Um, what, what was going on with your creative practice at the time? Well, I mean, I was, uh, at the time I, I had been playing in a, a, a saxophone quartet, um, called Anubis Quartet, um, which is, is no longer functioning. Um, but it was, was a really, really important and really phenomenal, uh, saxophone quartet. Uh, looking back, that was a, a really pivotal, uh, a part of my, part of that, of that part of my life. Um, and, uh, parallel to that. After I moved to Chicago, I immediately um, became fascinated and intrigued by the new music scene there and, and began performing with a, uh, a new music collective called Ensemble Del Niente. Which, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which um, was uh, was doing just some really great work, um, sort of grassroots effort from the ground up, like everyone just, you know, no one was getting paid back in those days. We were mm -hmm. all just, um, um, we were all just doing it because it was, um, we needed to be doing stuff out of school and also because there was this thing happening where all of a sudden there were no opportunities in the world in the professional world for mm -hmm. any of us and so we thought well um you know if we're gonna if we're gonna do anything we have to to do it on our own and that 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 runs parallel to this moment i had in my own thinking at the time um when i am out of school i'm facing like a mountain of student debt and mm. and have no um no professional opportunities like that that are even coming up for anyone in the field um you know let alone myself and and thinking like well what do i do am i gonna like wait around five years until there's a saxophone job opening or am, am i going to uh you know <laughs> go to law school i looked into taking the lsats really? i mean i really i, I really? really it was i was not uh, in love with playing the saxophone that much that i was willing to just like wait around forever for like the world to change then like provide me some sort of a job it was really it was it also i had been you know living in france before that so i was having that, that existential crisis that i <laughs> learned to have in france you know wait what is that so, this is you know it's a very i don't know it's a very very french way of being <laughs> where, i mean france some, is something like, happens and you 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 know question your essence uh, france it, is the best place in the world it's, <laughs> i do miss it <laughs> did you miss living there was that part of it um I did. I missed the simplicity of living there. I missed the beauty of it. I missed, um, I missed the ease of it. I missed the built-in ways that you are 
meant to enjoy your daily life mm-hmm. it's a little bit slower I, yeah i did miss all that and in chicago was there was a, there was a lot more responsibility in chicago i was also teaching um as an assistantship at northwestern and and, and teaching um a, a private studio of very talented um high school students on the south side of chicago one day a week so it was just i was being pulled in all these different directions sure. of my life and anyway in this in this moment of uh of of uh existential <laughs> crisis <laughs> uh, i remember thinking um well i can't control anything in my life right now i can't control the big picture of things um what can i control and mm-hmm. and um the one thing i came up with with was i could control the music i was playing it was the first time in my life i was not having a teacher um tell me what to play or having to run something by that teacher. I could have, I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted musically. And that was the first time in my life I'd had that. And that, that crisis led me to that realization. And from that realization, I went down the rabbit hole. I, I started, I started, um, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to find stuff to play and start working on stuff that no one else has done stuff that I'm curious about stuff that I find I need to find stuff that interests me Mm -hmm. and in that year um, I remember going to so many new music concerts researching so many composers um, you know like going through the entire list of like what Ice was doing and what every other new music ensemble was doing and learning about the composers Mm -hmm. Um, I I really um, that was a pivotal pivotal moment and around that time uh, the um, the previous executive director of, of Ensemble Daniente moved to Minneapolis I had been just pro bono writing some grants for the group and everyone as everyone pitched in and there was just there were a number of things that like critically aligned in this one moment um, I won a, hmm. a fellowship from the 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 Edis family Foundation which offered um, uh, a brand new um, uh, fellowship for emerging artists um, they gave one to a single student from Northwestern, one to an individual student from uh, DePaul and the University of Chicago and School of the Arts Institute of Chicago. So there were like four Edis Edis Family Foundation Emerging Artist Prizes that were given. Um, And somehow I happened to win this one that was given to one student from Northwestern. And what that allowed me to do, it was this, it was like a, it was a $30,000 fellowship. And the only rule was that I was not allowed to have a full-time job during that year. And this all happened right at that time when I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I got it. So at that point, the previous executive director of Don Yente had moved out of town and the group needed someone to run it. And I, I just, I thought I've got to do something in my life and here's an opportunity. It pays nothing, but I can't have a job anyway because I have this fellowship and I said, I'll do it. And I knew that I had one year of my life basically covered. And during that year I had to essentially raise enough money to start, start paying not only myself, but everyone else in that group. So I took that position and we went to work and we raised a lot of money. And over those, uh, over those next four years, which I ran the group, um, we we really, we expanded somewhere from a I don't know a, a fifty thousand dollar budget to about three hundred thousand dollars. What? And, um, had a, at the end of that a staff of four people. Musicians were getting paid like what what you um re, you know what you would expect to get paid in Chicago for doing new, new music concerts or even classical music concerts. Yeah. we we really like set some like insane goals. But wait, where did you get these? Them. Where did you get these administrative chops? Um, 
I'm sorry, which... Like, the where did you learn the skill of... Well, I mean, I had... Th- th- my real... <laughs> I, well, I, I think I learned them all on the spot. <laughs> really? Um, I, I had a knack for grant writing. I, that was sort of my one... My, my skill that I came to the group with. Uh, I won a Fulbright right on my undergrad. And, and that was the, the, the first grant I ever wrote and the first grant I ever um, won. And um, since then, I'm I, like, like writing proposals and, and that sort of like written grant writing written mm-hmm. written fundraising has just been um, one of my strengths and so when I started playing with the group in like 20 uh it must have been 2009 2009 or uh, maybe even 2010 I can't I'm trying to like dial it back so much has happened since. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, they needed some help in, yeah. in, in grant writing, really? you know, and everyone was just pitching in. And so I said, well, this is one thing that I think I can, I can help out with. And, yeah. uh, and it worked. And so, yeah, when it was time for, when, when the group needed a new, uh, a new executive director, um, that, that was, it, it made sense. It made yeah. sense for me to jump in that position. Cause, cause, uh, at least I could, I, I, I had a skill for bringing in, you know, some, some money via grants. So, sure. And creatively, things were rolling. Yeah, well, creatively things were rolling, but but it was. Uh, I don't mean or um, want to take too much um, credit for what the group was doing collectively. It really mm-hmm. was a collective of musicians. Ideas were coming in from a lot of people. We had a really fantastic um, advisory board with um, with um, composers um, that were were really visible in Chicago. I'm thinking. Um, Marcos Balter is a close friend of mine, and um, he he lives in Chicago. Well, he lives in New York now, but but um, he used to live in Chicago. Yeah, and so, um, and we had um, composers like Augusta Reed Thomas and and uh, people like Claire Chase, who yeah, became a close friend of mine there, and who was a, um, a member of our advisory board, who were offering like really fantastic advice to us as a tiny young new music collective that needed you know a lot of like steering and sure and so it wasn't like we could we you know what's funny is that during this time when like things were really bad for the economy and you know it's just uh the the nonprofit sector at large is just being beaten and beaten beaten that our group and it wasn't just our group it was um ice even more and Mm -hmm. groups like eighth blackbird and uh, this entire uh, array of like of young new music organizations were having this renaissance and just growing exponentially during this time when when it was just supposed to be awful for everyone and um that it was it was amazing to, to watch that happen um but but that growth um both um artistically and uh financially and organizationally it was certainly um, happening because of all of this, um, um, uh, this like synergistic. Was energy. Ensemble Dalniente um, was was its purpose to to commission or to mostly interpret uh, existing work? Yeah, we did both actually. Yeah. Um, one of our big um, one of our big objectives was to to present uh, contemporary music in Chicago that. Um, had not been happening there and i'm remembering like my first uh, year or two um running that group we we did uh fausto romatelli's professor bad trip that was okay. the, at the time that was a piece that was being played in new york and everywhere else and and people in chicago we wanted to hear it in chicago no one had done it there and so that was a we thought this is a, a piece that like is very now it's very important and like we're going to do it in chicago mm-hmm. so that we can have a chance to to experience that together um another goal of the group was to really uh commit and commission uh and and perform the the 
the work of Chicago based composers because there were so many composers in Chicago. Yeah. Um, so we really, really um, made some deep relationships with uh, both young and established composers in that city and, and advocated for their work, not only there, but when we went on tour. Mm-hmm. So, so those were in my mind, those were the two, the two big goals of that yeah. group. Um, is that group still going? They're still going. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and, and they're, they are such a tremendous group of players. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have not been involved in the last few years, um, but I, I'm, I'm happy to see the work that they're doing and, and they're, they're really special people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, so you moved to New York, what, 2014? So that was in summer of, of 2014. Okay. Yeah. yeah I had, um, the last couple of years in Chicago were, were hard. I was, um, I guess they were hard because things were going well. <laughs> The they, group, the, uh-huh. the the ensemble was doing well. I was still teaching privately um, on the south side of Chicago at this at this high school studio. Um, I uh, became an adjunct faculty at Northern Illinois University School of Music in 2013. I was teaching the classical saxophone and a music business course there. Um, so these things were were all good. It's just it's just that they were they were. They were numerous. <laughs> you were, so you were just really, spread pretty thin. really spread really, really thin, and um, I had I had moved to Chicago for for graduate school, and I knew that I knew that I knew that I didn't want to. I wasn't ready to settle there, and I had the realization uh, about a year after I finished my doctorate, which was in 2012, mm-hmm. that um, if I stayed there much longer, I, I felt like I would be there permanently right. which is certainly not a bad thing but i just it, i wasn't ready for that yeah but, i mean that realization though it's, it's just this morning i was in a cab coming back from brooklyn uh looking at like i used to live in this uh, building around the corner and i was looking at it at the bridge and i remembered i was like i moved to new york with less than a thousand dollars and a suitcase like literally like there's no way i would be like either brave or f- more likely foolhardy to do that at, at, at by any means now you know Oh like, well, when I think about like it, you do have to make pretty bold moves like that before you get to a certain age. No, I mean, I, 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 I yes, I, I, I hear you and I see you and I yeah. respect what you're saying, but I was not that person because <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Let me just, let me just, like, back off that edge because uh, um, <laughs> I was I, I always wanted to move to New York. Um, but like, I wasn't just gonna, I was 34 at the time. Like I yeah. needed a job. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, not yeah. gonna like just back up and, um, and, and be that kind of person, which I honestly wish that I was. But, um, I, um, um, let me say that I had, when I started running down the NTA, I'd, I remember giving a, um, a three year commitment to the, to the board of directors and to the, the band mm-hmm. that like, I'm going to do this. Um, I'm done taking this and I'm going to do it for three years. And like, you have my word and I'm, I'm going to do that. And I did. And at the end of that three years, um, I was around the time I was having this realization. And so I gave, um, at the end of that three years, I gave another one year commitment and I said, I'm going to do this for, for one more year. You have my word on that. Um, and during that year, um, I, I made the decision that I would, at the end of that year, be moving to New York and to, uh, to, to figuring out my next era. Um, and that was not, that was not a hard decision to make actually. Right. You know, I, I, it was a hard decision to carry out. Right. It was really hard to, to, you know, it was, there was a lot of work in figuring out how to transition that, that, that group to its next era. Um, I learned a lot along, uh, along the way in doing that. Um, but I, I knew that, um, at the time, uh, that, that 
that Ice was um, uh, didn't have a saxophone player on on his roster and was was um, interested in doing an increasing amount of programming involving saxophone and and um, of course I made my plans uh, clear to 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 Claire who had become a very close friend and mm-hmm. and and the rest of my now colleagues at Ice that I was planning on moving to New York and um again there was this like intersection of like um of things that just that happened um so perfectly um one being that the previous grant writer for ice um left the group uh and he was not a, a member of the ensemble but was just a member of the staff mm-hmm. and and um all of a sudden there was this opportunity to uh to to come uh, onto the group, not only just as the saxophone player, but they needed someone to write the grants. And so it was this perfect alignment of me moving to New yeah. York and having this like hybrid job, um, that was not going to feel like just a freelancer. Right. You know? And it so, would be, I mean, it seems like you could make it really your, like, it seems like such a hyper specific role to fill. It was a little on, too bo- per- on both sides. It was a little too perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, that's why it was sort of an easy decision. Uh, it, it was just, you know, at, at the age of 34, like I more so than ever in my life had felt rooted in Chicago and like I was mm-hmm. an adult picking up my life and and moving to New York. Um, that was what was sort of hard to carry out. And that's what I mean when I say I was not that person just like pack, packing up and moving to New York. Like I, I needed that sort of structure to exist like before. Sure. I would have had a hard time packing up and moving um moving just um on my own as a freelancer i think i would have done it anyway uh-huh. <laughs> i'm pretty sure i would have but sure. but it would have been a much much harder um, um transition for me and so there we are at summer of 2014 and at the marcos balter uh lived one block from me in uptown chicago i really love to miss that neighborhood yeah <laughs> and we had our like big uh i don't mind a big one bedroom apartment and he lived in this like big three bedroom apartment like a block away we saw each other at the time and hung out and uh, of course he does not he's brazilian does not have a driver's license and so here we are <laughs> he got he got a job at uh, i should say he got a job in in the composition faculty at montclair state university okay coincidentally at the same moment where i'm deciding to move to new york so here we are like two very very he's my, my best friend we both moving to new york at the same time it seemed perfect you know yeah and, and here i am in charge of like driving the the moving van do you guys literally moved here together we literally the i will never forget this um did you come here as roommates or just no 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 uh we we uh (laughs) we laugh about this now but uh, but it was super traumatic the day it happened i went the morning we're moving i went to go pick up our like big our like moving truck which i had like you know reserved online and uh it was my first time like doing all of this but i thought (laughs) how hard can it be like you reserve the truck you go pick it up go to pick up this truck and they don't have the the size truck that i had reserved and now i'm I'm, we're packing both of our apartments (laughs) in one truck and all of a sudden they have a truck that's like half the size of the truck and so It you know I um that was the moving day like we had to be out of our, both of us had to be out of our apartments that day, um there was like it all happened so quickly I remember taking the smaller truck, w- telling him you can only take half the stuff you think you're gonna take and I can only take half the stuff and we like threw away half of our Are stuff. Are you kidding me? No no moved to New York like it was like cleared out basically all of my belongings i mean it was actually really sad like i remember leaving i didn't even have time to ask friends to like come and pick up stuff what i had, like left a what gu- did you get i like of? left a guitar outside like by the dumpster you know it You're was like me. no it was so you couldn't even put a blast what, on facebook like come get it because it was it was just it was happening 
too fast. Oh god! I mean, it was all like, and also like I had to plan it all because because I was the one driving and one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just it was a really really tricky moment, and it was sort of panicky. And you know, looking that's like at, at, at the time it was just like, oh my oh my goodness, I can take like nothing. And I remember leaving all this like you know not that i had that much anyway but all this furniture in my apartment and he left it and just like writing to uh, an email to my landlord on my way out of town being like i'm okay i'm really sorry but like i left a bunch of furniture in the apartment i had no way like this all this all happened so quickly and i'm very very sorry and (laughs) he did the same thing and so (laughs) moved here with like almost nothing uh and i uh fortuitously um, um moved uh to new york at the same time as um, Elise Tessier, who is a flutist and vocalist of Ice. Okay. And now she's a, 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 a professor at NYU. Okay. In their College of Fine Arts. Their College of, excuse me, College of Arts and Sciences. Faculty of Arts and Sciences. I can never remember what it's But called. I mean, yeah, I, the, the whole, uh, like, this is what, like 35, 40 people in Ice now? Like musicians? Yeah, we have 36, yeah. 36, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, there's some really incredible talent in there. There's a lot of depth. And not only um, in terms of, like, just the number of instruments that some people can can play and i'm talking like jen curtis who is a not only one of the most special musicians uh uh interpreters of music on the violin but like also plays like the mandolin yeah people that can play various instruments and like a a breadth of styles yeah it's like it's staggering so when did you because you play barry uh, baritone quite a bit i do yeah when did that start well the year (laughs) i've always um uh, enjoyed playing Barry. It's probably my most, if I had to pick, like, what's your, I get asked a lot, what's your favorite one to play? And I'm yeah. like, well, they're all different. You know, they all yeah, have. the Barry comes the best. Oh, it's just something about the low. It's like the, the, the physical engagement you yeah. have with this instrument, the air you can put through it, like the way it vibrates. It's just, it just, it's lower in the body. It's like, it kind of like moves you. It, it in a yeah. more like profound way. I love it. Um, but I, the year that I won that um, big fellowship back at, at Northwestern and got this, uh, this, this, this like cash prize. Um, and I was asked like, how are you going to spend the money? And I, I knew that that was my one chance to go to buy a Barry Sachs. I was like, I'll never have this influx of money ever again like this. I have to get a Barry Sachs now. Otherwise, like I need it because I'm out of school. I need it for my practice. I don't have yeah. access to it. And so I, I, that was 2010. That's when I, I, bought, bought, I bought a Barry Sax. And it's, uh, uh, it's a really, really, really great instrument. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was, was the desire to play the Barry based on available repertoire, like the Lee Hilo stuff? Uh, no. No, I've never. I was never drawn to the instrument because I was like, I have to play that piece. Yeah, sure. I mean, sure, Lee's piece. Um, that's a, that's an exception, though. Yeah. Um, that's just it's that's an amazing piece. It's fun to play. It's hard to play, and it's just it brings out the best of that instrument, which is yeah. like also some of its nastiest. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, a lot of the the stuff I, I I've played on Barry has been uh, either composed for, for me or for ensembles that I play in. Um, so no, I, I think I just, I've been more drawn to the sound and the physical sensation of playing the berry yeah. than the actual any actual repertoire. Yeah, I mean that record you made something like what, a year or two ago, Isms, Ism, I, Ism. Yeah, yeah. that uh, that the first piece is the Tenny piece, right? Right, and that's on Barry. It starts on Barry. Yeah, it starts on Barry. Um, then goes to tenor, alto, soprano, back down, alto, tenor, and right. it's on Barry. It's yeah. incredible. It's really an amazing piece. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get to meet him? 
I did not. I did not. Honestly, that piece was not on my radar until about five or six years ago. I didn't even know it existed. I, I really didn't even know about James Tinney's music until I'd moved to Chicago yeah. and, and heard the the solo Tam Tam piece and and which is uh um having never written a note for percussion and you know it's just like one big crescendo on the Tam Tam and one big day crescendo over the course of uh, I can't remember 15 to 20 minutes and having like this mind-blowing like light bulb moment that was like it was music that I like it that was so so complex yet so simple at the same time and so clear and so uh it it was just it was like a revelation for yeah. someone who had been like you know uh been really into like listening to like Fernie Ho and, and Grise and it's like right. super complex music to hear something uh ultimately as complex but but so with such clarity uh, when with the listener's experience that has so much clarity that I mean, it was it blew my mind i then like eventually uh, found this saxophone piece that Denny had written called Saxony. Uh-huh. And it was written in 1978, I believe. It uses this like tape delay system that it, uh, that w- we would never see it now because it uses like this outdated mm-hmm. you know, technology. Um, and I had, um, I, I'd wanted to play this piece for a while. And when I moved to New York, I had um, uh, Josh Rubin and, I think maybe with the help of Nathan Davis, they created a max patch for me. That, that <laughs> Josh is the best. <laughs> he really is, is. He's the best. Talk about someone with a skill set. I mean, he. Well, and he, just like a heart. I mean, he's just such a mensch. He's done a lot for me. Yeah. And, and he's a very, very generous person. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I think about the people in my life to which I owe. He's lot, one of them in my life as well. Definitely one of them. So yeah. he made this max patch for me. Um, uh, that replicated the tape delay system that would have originally been used in this piece, which is that every 12 seconds it gets looped. And then over time, the loop, each loop uh, kind of fades away. So mm. um, what you get is some sort of like uh, at any point, uh, uh, an accumulative thing of what's hap- been happening in the last three to four minutes. Mm-hmm. And the piece lasts 22 ish minutes. I think my recording is 27 minutes. Um, it was when I look back on the pieces that have, have like changed my life. You know, I've had to pick uh, like my, my top three. Like this is maybe this is number one or two. Yeah, uh, it 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 led me. I, I, the piece was challenging um, because it called upon a, a skill set that that involved um, things that I knew how to do, which were to play very in tune microtones, you know, to, to like, to, to play, um, to control the saxophone in in a pitch, uh, pitch, uh, way that, that the piece necessitated because in, I should say in the piece, he's, he's, he controls, um, the, the harmonic content and the shape and form of the piece, the proportions of the piece very carefully. Mm -hmm. But otherwise the thing is completely open to interpretation in terms of, 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 style Mm -hmm. he gives you a grid with timings and with pitch content and it's up to you to fill in the rest and so here i was faced with (laughs) uh filling in essentially the 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 style content Mm. over a 27 minute piece um it was it was really it was difficult i i I don't want to use the word 
improvised because it wasn't totally improvised, sure. right? Like um, some aspects of it were a little bit improvised. Some some things that I feel – some things that I brought to the piece were very were planned. Um, but it was just um, – the piece was – it made me be me more than I've ever had to be in a, a performance or in a recording. And um, it, it really just – it pushed me to like the next level of like – of, of my creative practice. Um, when you spend that much time, I mean, you know, you're, you're in a pretty cool position where frequently the music you work on is written by young living composers. So you have direct access to them on a personal level. But when you spend that much time with a piece by someone who, you know, is not even alive anymore, when do you feel, do you feel like you kind of know that person or do you feel like a closeness or some sort of, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think in this piece, like I, I, in the, in the early stages of learning it, it brought out so many of my own insecurities that mm -hmm. it was almost easier not having that composer there because I, 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 I was, right. you know, I, I thought I have to do this for myself and I have to come up with something for myself. And this is why I ended up with a recording of it. That's, 27 minutes instead of 22 minutes mm -hmm. you know in the middle of the piece i actually go i, I break the, I, I i break the rules of the piece i i um as the piece ascends to like its peak it's a soprano actually at that moment um and in performance i do this um i actually in, in, put down the soprano pick back up the bass sax and nail some of these really loud low fundamental notes again so that we mm -hmm. get we get at the at this climactic moment of the piece like the bass again like right. i didn't want to i didn't want to have the big moment without the bass i right. just uh, i had to have that um, in, in the recording i even cheat and you can hear that at this big moment when i reach like a high uh, what is it? A high E flat on the soprano saxophone. You hear the, like the fundamental come back in again. That's not supposed to happen in the piece, right. but I just couldn't imagine couldn't my, not my version of the piece without it. Yeah. And so I, 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 because he was not alive. I, I, I just had to make like this version of the piece for myself. Mm -hmm. I sent it to, um, to his, um, to his, uh, the, the the really wonderful people that manage his estate and um, who communicated and sent the recording to to his wife and they were really really happy with it and mm -hmm. not only not only were they happy with it but they they gave me the the um the, the rights to 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 release it and didn't make me like even uh, pay a licensing so it was they were so yeah. so generous and supportive and um I don't know in that moment I felt like I knew the composer yeah <laughs> yeah that's pretty yeah. amazing and then. So, so with the role that you, the dual roles that you play within Ice, do you find yourself being able to like, like, do you get to like, choose what gets commissioned and how much say in that in generating new repertoire for the saxophone? Um, yeah, I, I to to a degree that um varies, but is is pretty deep. Mm -hmm. um, that's a that's a I, we get asked a, a, a varieties of that question all the time. And it's, it's so difficult to answer because ice does so much programming. Yeah. So much we can really we, insane. We commission pieces in so many different ways and through so many different organizations and, um, with so many various partners, um, that, that it's, it's so hard to like kind of cast the general, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, explanation of, of, of how those commissioning activities happen. But, um, I am lucky in that I, I do get to have a lot of input um, as not only a staff member, but the, the sole saxophonist of the group. And, right. And like um, composers that I would like to work with and, and, and people that um, I would like to, to, to see us working with, even if it's not 
person I'm planning on. I also, as uh, as a member of, excuse me, as a as a co-director of our Open Ice program, which has um, been a really important initiative over the last few years to bring about 33 to 45% of our programming um, completely free and open to the public. Um, wait, so wait, what exactly is Open Ice? It's the free concerts? Yeah, it's a okay. series of free concerts. I mean, it's, it's not just concerts. Um, it's it's a, a series of like archiving experiments with the New York Public Library. It's um, a series of... Um, of education side-by-side -side programs we do um, uh, with in partnership with youth orchestras around the world. Open Eyes has like various branches of it, sure. you know, and education and outreach, concert um, making and recording. Um, and, and, and it is, it is uh, this, this structure sort of within the structure of our organization, um, which allows us to do those things and make them um, free and open to the public and, and more accessible than, than, you know, what, um, arts programming generally is while still being able to compensate our artists and put them in positions to curate concerts and to kind of mm -hmm. drive, drive projects. So through that program, um, we have, um, um, a good amount of agency to, to curate our own programs or to say, I want to do a concert here and here's what the, the, the repertoire is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, it's, it's this sort of group where if, if, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, agency to to sort of determine how much you want to be involved in in things like that. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've been pretty involved. Yeah. So. Well, and so we, we you talked about it um, a few minutes ago, but has the, has the was was getting more involved in improvisation? Did that coincide with your move to New York? Um, I think that it did. I, I think more so it, it it had to do with becoming really close uh, to developing a really close friendship with Peter Evans. Yeah, and some of my colleagues' eyes and seeing them play and and um, coming out of this era of my life where I had learned this. Um, I was learning insanely difficult notated music. I'm thinking of, 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 uh, this piece by Aaron Cassidy asphyxia, which I, you know, spent these sort of years of my life learning and playing. And, um, I mean, years in that, like, um, I mean, I think I practiced it for six months before the first time I played it, but years just in getting comfortable yeah. playing a piece like that. And, and even talking about it and putting myself on stage, doing it, uh, that piece, felt like a process yeah but so when reason. you work on a piece like that a piece that's that complex and that's that demanding of you as a performer when you know once you step away from the piece does what you experienced in that piece lend itself to other musical aspects of your life well it, i think it does because what i learned in that piece is that it's uh well it's the thing that, that people who interpret music as difficult as Fernio have been saying all along, which is that the, the music is so hard, you're never going to play it perfectly. And in that moment of imperfection, um, which you have strived to get to, which you are attempting to do at perfection right. um, and attempting to do in real time in front of an audience, you know that it's, there will be imperfections. And in that moment, those imperfections open themselves up to improvisation. Right. So that inherently in this super difficult music, in this hyper notated, hyper complex music, improvisation is naturally built in in the form of, of, of imperfections. And if you can look at those imperfections like that, somehow it, it like rewires the thinking around 
um, what is good or what is bad, right. the whole value system in music. So in a way, that hypernotated music um, really directly led me um, into improvised music, and even though that seems counterintuitive. It, it makes perfect sense to me. And like you, I listen to someone like Peter Evans play, and like, I'm talking like specifically about like the solo trumpet stuff that he does, the concerts and the records. You don't you don't do that without this like strong classical foundation. I mean, there's so much technique, right. so much articulation, so much clarity to it, and that's not a diss on anyone. It's just you know it's very much a compliment to to you know one person in particular. But like that's you know that's clearly I don't know anyone who could hear him and like, be doubtful that this guy is a highly skilled right. trained musician. At, totally. Completely agree. At the same time, um, what you end up with sometimes is a creative and artistic practice in the technical sense that you are tied to this <laughs> conservatory um, training to, to an instrument. Yeah. Uh, and I had that struggle that was um, prior to my, as we talked about, you know, uh, struggles with the soprano saxophone. <laughs> right. right. You know, I always had the, I always, before that, I think my crisis was with the alto saxophone because this was the instrument that I, in school, I did my scales on, that I played my etudes on, that I played transcriptions on. It was the sound, it was the instrument um, which was uh, in, in, um, the educational sense tied to a classical sound. Not those saxophones a disaster. Yeah. And so like, here I am like, um, you know, it's the sound of the voice. It's the, it's this sort of mezzo soprano, melodic vibrato, dark, you know, like mm -hmm. robust tone. And, and, um, that was, uh, as, as one thing I love about the saxophone and that I've took me a long time to, to learn is that it's a chameleon. It, it really just, mm -hmm. it, it can do so many different things and it can shape shift and, and, here I was stuck on that instrument because I had like this one technical practice with it. Mm -hmm. So in that, it, it took me um, a few years to like start, start, um, um, uh, un not undoing that, that practice, but just somehow like making it more multifaceted and, and like in my, it's more like a mental thing, like divorcing this, like, um, this instrument with this, like that, this one, way of operating it that is so deeply deeply rooted and i think that's something that that, that like peter has been able to do and yeah something he excels at is that he does have that training that you're talking about but he also has developed a practice that is so um far from classical trumpet playing which he can still do of mm -hmm. course but um and and he's worked really 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 hard at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that's, I know that that he that is the the root of his practice now. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, you know, um, and that's what I'm curious about now, and that's what I've started to do, and that's I've made a lot of progress for myself on alto saxophone in that way. But but as I, an improviser, as an improviser, or just as even a a, a user of the instrument, sure. Um, but I I I feel like this is an, an area of focus for me. Um, now and in the next couple of years, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And are, do you spend much time listening to improvised music? Uh, well, uh, no, not really. Um, what I, <laughs> I, <laughs> sorry, this is I'm having a moment of deep, deep self-reflection right now because uh, I'm. <laughs> the answer is that I just <laughs> need to be listening to more music in general. Like Me too. you know, I I. I think back to this time I was telling you about when I was like just listening to all yeah. of this shit and I was like just diving deep into it and like so curious and um uh, I I'm not I don't think I've lost that curiosity but I just you know when I think about the last year or two of my life like I do have not had the time to 
just listen to as much music. So my answer to that is no. And I, and I'm now, um, in this moment of deep, deep self-reflection to myself (laughs) that I shall, shall, now that I've publicly said it, (laughs) carve out more space for this. Yeah. Because it's super important and I, I I love it and I love to listen to music. (laughs) It's crazy. I, I, I was, like I said, you know, I was in this Uber this morning to get Uber to Brooklyn and Uber back. And I have and I've said it on here quite a lot. Like that's where I hear contemporary pop music is in the back of Ubers. It's it's all horrific. Just <laughs> listening to music can be. I think if you have this relationship to music, it it could be like a very jarring experience. It can be jar. It 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 can be, and sometimes it should be. Um, yeah. Uh, in many different senses and in many different ways, we could, we could go down the rabbit hole about that. But. Um, yeah, sometimes it's 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 shocking and almost violating in a way. You, well, yeah, you know, you gotta be careful. Uh, like uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Mario Diaz de Leon, of course, one of my dear friends, one of yeah. my favorite musical thinkers out there. I re- I was listening to one of his records, and I was like, I gotta turn this off. Like it was like you know, you can ingest too much medicine sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you know, I love that about him. Yeah, you know, I I hear you. Yeah, yeah, um, and maybe I'm more sensitive to that too as I am. Getting older now as a thirty-eight year old uh, old man. Going <laughs> What's your on, birthday? Going on seventy. Um, June nineteen. Okay, Gemini. Okay, neurotic Gemini. We're like a, we're like a month apart. <laughs> um, I am more sensitive to. Uh, um, it's not that I'm more. Actually, I think I'm less sensitive to to my reaction to different musics um, because I've had so many different reactions and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, g- getting to a point in my life where it's, it's harder to surprise me, but I think I'm just maybe more sensitive to the way I um, electively spend my time and available attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's important, you know, um, it's really important, um, which is good in a way that I, I um, just don't give myself time or space to um, content, Per se, that I think is uh, bad, whether that's in a, a place where live music is happening. And I'm not talking live music in the classical sense because I think we have to experiment with, with live classical music. I'm mm-hmm. talking more in like social settings or mm-hmm. in places where you're going to hear um, music that is happening. Um, I, I, I don't, um, I have a lot of friends that are in music that, it, that is not classical music in New York. Um, and uh, they, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm talking about places that have like good sound places mm-hmm. where there is going to be really good music happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I need that these days Yeah, <laughs> as like uh, almost like a baseline starting point. <laughs> what was the last great concert you saw? <laughs> the last great concert I saw. Oh, I'm trying to think of, um, Well, I'm just trying to think of the last concert I saw, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, um, I'm thinking of like the last, I'm thinking of like a great classical music concert I saw was in, um, uh, last year I was in Berlin for a week and, uh, a dear friend of mine, the composer, uh, Stefan Prinz, who okay. lives there, he and I went to go see, um, see, uh, Sibelius violin, um, concerto performed by, uh, Patricia, um, uh, Kopitinskaya. Okay. I think I mispronounced her last name in the Berlin concert house. Uh, and it was 
so so stunning yeah. so enthralling you know and i've always been a fan of her and like you know I, i'm down to sit through the sibelius violin concerto like what monster wouldn't be you know like i'm not you know i'm here for it right yeah but like it was just she, just, know, she just came on stage with those bare feet and like just i mean was took it to the highest oh, level and it was like there was just no arguing with it yeah you know? like and i wasn't there to argue with it to begin with i was right. just like thank goodness like i am so here for this like yeah. I was, it was a really really great moment it was the first time in a long time i had, had like gone to see the symphony orchestra you know? yeah and it was my first time seeing um her live and seeing and she killed it seeing in the berlin concert house and it was just it was great you know it yeah. was this really great moment um i uh yeah, I used to go to see classical like symphony orchestra concerts a lot, especially when I lived in Chicago. Yeah, so I do have like a lot of great, great moments, um, um, and and along those lines. But this was um, it had been it had been years though. And yeah, this one. And now that I'm thinking about that, that that's now they're all coming back. I'm okay to like, um, talk about great concert. Uh, it was the opening of the New York Philharmonic's concert season, uh-huh. and uh, my very very close collaborator and uh dear friend ashley fury uh-huh. was commissioned by the new york phil to write uh this uh, this new piece mm-hmm. which she did and it involved um, not only a symphony orchestra but vocal ensemble um and who who were really surrounding the audience and then who at the end came down in front of the stage with these these really sort of um twisted megaphone type shape uh amplifiers mm-hmm. for their voice and um uh rebecca heller was uh um bassoon soloist she was on this platform in the middle mm. of the audience and, and nate woolley um was a trumpet soloist at sort of the back of the stage and and, and raised up into mm. the air it was um I, what i'm describing is a piece that <laughs> feels like a big production um and, and maybe it was in some ways but it was to watch something like that happen at the new york philharmonic it, it felt absolutely groundbreaking yeah um, the piece was I mean, I don't, I don't pretend to like understand like the, the, the depth of her like <laughs> technical genius and all mm-hmm. of that. I just know it was a great piece and I kind of don't know why it was a great piece, but like, I, I, I loved what I heard. I was absolutely compelled by it. It moved me deeply and spiritually. I felt like I understood it and connected to something and to see, to see that happening, uh, in, in, uh, Avery Fisher Hall. Although now what is it called? It's, uh, oh, it's, yeah. It's, I, uh, 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 Geffen Hall, I yep, think. Right. Um, yeah, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it felt like a, a real groundbreaking moment. Yeah. Um, right on. The orchestra sounded fantastic and the rest of the concert was great. And maybe I'm biased cause she's a close friend. <laughs> she's the best. But still, yeah. You know, I, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we did good here today. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for coming over, man. This has been a pleasure. It's nice Thank talking you. to you. Thanks. All right. That was Ryan Muncie. He's a good guy. That beautiful, beautiful, beautiful music you hear behind me, that's him playing James Tenney. The piece is called Saxony. Gotta check it out. You gotta check it out. That's on his record, Ism. Go to ryanmuncie.com to find out more about him. Tremendous musician. Go to the 5049 website. Become a donor. All right, that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.